You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. Every year in the U.S., more young people leave the churches in which they were raised, sometimes abandoning religious faith altogether and becoming what the pollsters call nuns. Even within these churches, those young folk who stay identify less and less with the historic confessions, opting for a subjective piety of being good and feeling good, what Christian Smith calls moral therapeutic deism. Watching this trend, our churches ask anxiously, how will we survive? The young are our future. As worrying as all this is, Andrew Root argues that it isn't a problem unique to millennials or the younger Generation Z. In his book, Faith Formation in a Secular Age, Root shows that the exodus of the young and the anxiety of the old both arise from the fundamental conditions of our secular time, materialism, individualism, consumerism, and the cults of youth and authenticity. I'm David Grubbs, your host for this Christian Humanist Profiles, and today I have the pleasure of conversation with Dr. Andrew Root, Carrie Olson-Balson, Chair of Youth and Family Ministry at Luther Seminary, and author of Faith Formation in a Secular Age, Responding to the Church's Obsession with Youthfulness, published by Baker Academic. Welcome to Christian Humanist Profiles, Dr. Root. Hey, thanks for having me. It's fun to be on here. In your introduction... All right, you reflect on the panic of Christians in our culture about the young folk, right? They're drift, they're drifting into weak belief, you know, moral therapeutic deism, or they're drifting out of belief altogether and becoming nuns. So what is this fear's source, and how do you see that fear as a symptom of something even more deeply wrong with, I guess, particularly American Christianity? Yeah, I mean, I, to me, I feel like the fear is just the weakening of institutions, and um, I think there's legitimate fear in that. I mean, you know, I, I tell people often that I work in a seminary that's uh, been through an incredible amount in the last seven or so years, and since 2012, and, and so I'm very kind of existentially aware of, you know, if we lose another 20% of our students, there will be major faculty um, reductions and it will be just hard to buy health health care. So I understand how how that works. So I don't want to be flippant about that in any way. But I think that the anxiety really does rest with this kind of deep sense that um, what used to be is is drifting away. And particularly in the main line, I think this kind of sense that uh, these institutions that used to be pretty strong that we inherited just are not are not as viable. And we knew this day was coming, but but here it is now. And uh, I think that it you flip it over on the more evangelical side. I think the concern is just um, maybe even an existential concern of, of can we uh, even pass the faith on and, and what does this mean? And, and what are the, the kind of moral horizons that are, that our young people are, are living with. And, um, and I think those, I think there's overlap between those two, but yeah, I mean, I think the deep fear ultimately has, has a lot to do it's always more than one thing, but it has a lot to do with the weakening of institutions, and then what that means for us existentially with our with our own positions as as kind of church professionals. But then that, what that means for, I guess, the depth and viability of Christian faith overall. So when uh, when our reaction to that fear is something like, how can we keep the young people, or appeal to the young people, or what will we do without the young? They are the future of Christianity. Um, what in our response do you find 
flawed when we when, <laughs> when that's our reaction. Yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, I may just be a complete cynic here, and so, um, but to paint this at really broad strokes, I think usually we we ask that question or make those statements that we need young people to be here because we we really want the church to still be a viable thing. And one of the ideas I play with in the book is that young people tends to equal authenticity, and it feels like what our churches and institutions are missing more than anything in kind of the shadow of the secular age that we're living in is kind of some sense of authenticity, of vitality in that way. So you hear this all the time in kind of mid-sized and, and declining mainline churches that will say, you know, well, if we just get young people here, if we, it, it almost becomes if we can just find the right marketing strategy and then we can get them to show up. And I'm always a little skeptical that these people actually want young people present to hear their stories, to share in their life, to, to kind of move through judgment and communion with them um, as much as that, as much as they want their churches to still feel, have a feel of being vital. Um, and so young people tends to equal, I think, culture, culturally authenticity. And, and one of the arguments I'm making in the book is one of the highest currencies we have in our, our late modern time here is authenticity becomes a really high good. It becomes a incredibly uh, significant kind of moral horizon where you you have you have something good when you have authenticity and so the church is really i think seeking for authenticity which goes back to your first question but which is that what i think we mean that we we need the young people to be here um we we are essentially saying we're in a huge deficit of authenticity and boy if we could just have a bunch of people around here whether young adults or adolescents or even children um, we'll feel like we're dying less slowly or we'll at least feel like there's a future for us or something like that. The backbone of your project, you, t you talk about authenticity and that's really the big place where we're digging in here. What does it mean to be um, authentically Christian and are we maybe using authenticity in different ways? Um, the backbone of your project is uh, applying, mining, I'm not sure of the right, ver the right verb, um, Charles Taylor's secular age, um, yep. and applying it to Christian ministry. So why Charles Taylor? And what has been so fruitful about his thought that it has sustained so much consideration over the last 10 years? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's kind of crazy. The book, the 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 that book, A Secular Age, came out in 2007. It almost mm -hmm. just feels like it took four or five years, at least, for people in in the theology world to kind of. Um, I mean, people were aware of it, of course, but to start mm -hmm. really, like you said, mining it for its significance. And um, it's a hard book, obviously. It's a it's a thick book that is great to keep your door open on a really windy day. I mean, it's a <laughs> 700 it's a 700 page block of a book. If you need to murder your neighbor in your office, it's the exact book you want to use. But, um, you know, it's, it's just a heavy book and it's, it's difficult, but also really intriguing because Taylor actually says in the beginning of this, that he wants to tell us a story and he wants to tell us the story of how we get to this kind of world we're in in which what he means by that is the kind of world where belief in God is a completely optional thing. Like you can hold a job, you, um, aren't, you know, uh, sent from your neighborhood um, with a uh, torch and, um, and pitchfork because you don't believe in God. Like, it's, it's a very viable thing to believe in God or not believe in God. Like, how did we get to this kind of world where it's actually more difficult to, to be a practicing uh, religious believer than it is 
not to be. And um, so he wants to tell us that story, and then it takes him 700 pages to tell that story. So what's really appealing about it is it comes in this really rich narrative, but there's so many turns and there's so many back and forths that it, it is really as depressing as I, I tell pastors all the time that this is, I think, the first philosophy book written in the 21st century that would be read in the 22nd century, but that you actually have to read it two or three times before it starts making sense to you. So I think that's why it took, you know, five years for people to really start starting start to be able to harvest uh, the meaning of this thing. But uh, for me, it almost becomes a different book every time I read it, and there's just so many insights in it. And so I think one of the big takeaways that Taylor gives us is that he really is trying to describe the secular age that we live in, in a very, I guess the way to think about Charles Taylor is very ironic. Like he wants to talk about gains. He wants to talk about losses, but he's never going to, he's never going to kind of move into this big headline um, kind of news bite world of saying, um, you know, it's, it's all going downhill or this is, this is, uh, you see books like this all the time, like the dumbest generation ever, or the loss of the American mind. And, and he just doesn't want to fall into those traps. He wants to actually say that there's really interesting ways that people are making sense of their world. And yet in the midst of that, there's some things that we've lost. And, uh, so it, it's just, it's just rich. And for me in this book and in, in my book, I'm just really, like you said, trying to pick up one one idea of his, which is uh, he's been very famous for, but his idea of um, authenticity or living in the age of authenticity and, and how that's built on a certain ethic of authenticity and uh, trying to kind of front that as a, as a way of, of thinking maybe about our, our issues with decline and our anxiety um, and uh, yeah, and our deficit of, of authenticity. Well, in order to unpack uh the points you're making about authenticity, you have to, we have to understand the the position of the self in the world that the different uh, stages, definitions uh, of of secularism imagine, um, especially the you you talk about the notion of of the buffered self versus the um, permeable or porous self, so how how does how does the secularism the story of secularism as he tells it shape the kind of authenticity that we see so exemplified that we that we hope to find so exemplified in youth yeah yeah that's a great question and it, it probably makes uh, your listeners even more depressed because the 700 page a secular age is actually in some ways like part two of, of his book, The Sources of the Self, which is to actually kind of tell that story of how we get to a, a kind of modern conception of the self. And he does pick up on those ideas. And like you were saying, that Taylor really has this conception that really before the Reformation, say, particularly before the modern era, that we lived with this deep sense that the self was very porous, that particularly evil forces could get into it, um, that we were quite quite anxious about demons and other things getting inside of us. And that we go through this progression, in some ways a recovery of, of, of certain Augustinian theological perspectives, but then push forward and kind of double down through the Reformation and then um, into a more scientific world where slowly but surely the self becomes more buffered and things can't get into the self. And, you know, I, I find myself living this out with my own with my own son who's 14 and you know he has his moments of being a 14 year old and and uh, having you know just being very hard to be around and um 
almost never, well, I will say never have I thought when he was acting like a complete a-hole, have I thought, oh my gosh, um, maybe there's a demon here. Maybe, maybe this is possession. <laughs> I, you know, I, I, maybe I should have, it may be quite rational to think that, but I never have done that because I'm very much kind of framed by this, uh, this imminent reality of a, of a, of a buffered self. And I tend to think something like, Oh, he must be hungry or he clearly didn't get enough sleep, which kind of Taylor's point is there's then a buffer. There's a buffer between the kind of essence of his being of the kind of core essence of his self and what affects him. Um, or Taylor uses the example of, you know, your drink, you, you, you had too much drink the night before too much wine and you, you know, you wake up and you're crabby and, and, you know, you, you, you apologize and say, Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. It's just, you know, I, I, I just, uh, my, my chemistry's off because I had too much to drink last night or I, I need a cup of coffee or something that there's always this kind of buffer that keeps us from getting to the kind of essence of our, our being. But for our ancestors, that wasn't the case that, uh, you know, to have melancholy or something was to have something wrapped around the essence of, of your very self. So we do get to this idea that we are these self-contained beings, that we are that we are selves, and that this self then becomes on its own project of figuring out who it is. And I think the real contribution of Taylor here is to make the argument that um, the kind of selves we then become, especially, say, in a kind of post-60s world where then we live in a consumer society that we become the kind of selves that are really looking to be authentic, to, to be original. And then we take on um, a certain moral horizon. And Taylor's big on thinking that human beings always have a deep, internal, almost tacit sense of what it means to be living a good life. And that our good life or what's good becomes framed for us around authenticity. So we live with this ethic that says no other human being shall have a right to define for another human being what it means for them to be them. That you that you are ultimately free to decide for your decide for yourself what it means for you to be you. And if you don't listen to anyone else in deciding about what it means for you to be you, then you're truly authentic. And so the only authority you should then really follow is that which speaks to you, which speaks to actually your buffered self. That's the only thing that you should actually really follow here. And so um, this becomes a struggle for the church, because even when the church wants to kind of make assertions about this being, being superficial or being highly too individualistic, um, it comes out of deep ethical perspective. So when religious forms of, of life start saying too boldly what it means for a human being to be a human being or what practices you have to take to be faithful, um, culturally, that can be seen as a violation, as harsh. Um, and it is kind of amazing to me that you spend time on social media and most people, even who grew up in the church, have this overwhelming kind of sense that the church is trying to impose on their identity or not recognizing the uniqueness of their identity. Um, and um, sometimes I feel like that becomes a, quite a cul-de-sac or um, even a dead end of uh, what do they mean by the church and, and how does and what does that look like? But it, you can see this deep kind of sense of drive for authenticity and that you have a right to be your unique self and that you should receive recognition and affirmation for that self that you're broadcasting um, to the world. Because if, if the self is this intact thing behind the buffer, anything that comes from the outside to try to alter it is necessarily an invasive enemy. Yeah, most definitely. It, unless you, volition, out of your own volition, you are willing to take that in. But that has to be your own own choice. So, yeah, it becomes a real theological issue because I think 
at least in Protestant traditions, we have do have this sentiment, and I think in Catholic and Orthodox ones too, of being of being taken up by something, of of something, um, you know, of of God coming and arriving and, and speaking words of judgment and grace in the midst of this. But uh, yeah, it could be quite a violation if something feels like it's imposing on you, and it's not your your own your own choice to to do that. So Taylor wants to affirm that there's an ethic here that this isn't just pure hedonism, but it is definitely an individualistic perspective. It definitely is a project of self. It, de- it de- most definitely is a working out of trying to be unique. And um, I think it, it tends to make the self, makes the person, maybe it's a better way to say it, quite, quite exhausted because you're always working on the project of, of the self. And so um, I think that becomes a huge ramification. I didn't quite get into as much in the book, but I think becomes a uh, in, in impact of this need, this continued drive to have to find authenticity can lead to uh, quite a bit of fatigue, I think. Yeah. The, one of the sort of moving from how, how does youth become this sort of ultimate expression of, of authenticity, uh, I thought it was um, also also interesting to, to uh, returning back to the idea of, of the secular world is the place in which um, you you can live perfectly well without even seeing a need for a god. Um, so if if there if there is a world in which there's nothing inside of um, if there's nothing outside of the frame of, of the material, and authenticity is in, is the best good, why then does youth become, I guess, the the height and ideal of all of that? Yeah, so my my I think this fits with Taylor, but my contribution with that, and especially thinking about you know younger populations of people, is that I, I, Taylor wants to make the argument that we then inherit, as you as you said really well, this imminent frame, as he calls it, the sense that everything is natural and material, and that we kind of live with this reductive state that we inherit. But I think what happens in the midst of that, and why authenticity becomes such an important piece, and we see this historically with even the counterculture movement, is that we simply as human beings can't take it. We can't take the reduction. We actually can't live with the fact that all there is, is there's nothing more than this kind of natural material, that we have to find some way to create meaning inside of that. And authenticity in the journey of the self, in the self's um, pull for kind of uniqueness or even kind of ecstatic experiences of consumption or whatever becomes a way of, I think, coping with the reductions of the inner frame to actually find a way to live inside of a world where, I'm to say it maybe boldly and more Nietzschean than, than I mean, but in a world where God is dead, where God, where God doesn't speak anymore, that I think that Taylor kind of thinks we're in a project here. This is the first time really in human history where we're trying to, to live without any sense of any kind of transcendent ref- reference. Um, and it's, it's given us a malaise of meaning, and it's given us a malaise of directionlessness in, in certain ways. But authenticity becomes, I mean, the way I almost think about it is it becomes graffiti and, um, I don't know, gra- yeah, graffiti and, and a, um, uh, bright colors that, that are painted on that kind of stiff bars of imminence, the very, the very hard, unforgiving bars of the imminent frame we, we live in. And so youthfulness itself becomes a kind of way to work on yourself and the project of yourself becomes a, a certain kind of way of coping with the reduction of uh, imminence itself and the very 
narrow and flat perspective of, of human experience. So, yeah, almost in many ways, this is why you get something, a movie like, um, you know, not to date myself completely, but like American Beauty, where Ricky in American Beauty, the, the high school kid next door becomes the actual sage, the, the, the wise spiritual guide for the, the middle-aged, um, middle-aged man, because he, he's, he's more authentic and as more authentic, he's, he can find more ways to actually cope with the imminent frame, which means, you know, smoking pot and working on his body and, and actually finding who he really sexually desires. Like those all become these authentic ways inside the reduction to find meaning or at least find something more than just the, the deafening emptiness of, um, the modern, secular age that we live in. I don't remember. Maybe, maybe this is something that you address at one point, but as I was, uh, as I was reviewing for this, uh, for this interview, and as you were just sort of explaining that, I was imagining, I can't, I can't, I, I'm having a hard time. It's been a while since I was a teenager, but I don't remember actually having the weight of that as a mm. teenager, but I've lived, I was also in a very conservatively evangelical circle. Um, I don't think the, the cult of the, of youth was, was quite as ascendant in where, where I was, but I have, uh, I wonder if that has something to do with something of the growing mental health crisis among the, the sort of the up and coming generation in middle school, high school, coming into college. I mean, what is the psychological weight of you are now at the at the at the apex of your of your existence? Mm-hmm. You know, this is yeah. as good as it gets for you. <laughs> right, 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 right. Yeah, I mean, I think that becomes an incredible burden. Except what I think is happening, and this, I'm just completely kind of this is a, just a thought experiment. But I think for um, I'm not sure how old you are, but people probably closer to, we're probably pretty close to the same age, maybe within at least 10 years of each other. And I think for, for people who came, you know, came of age in say the nineties or early two thousands, that, uh, there was this kind of sense for sure for me, like I graduated from high school in 1993. I mean, there was a sense that like the high school was the greatest years of your life, which seemed like an incredible letdown, but, um, you know, like <laughs> it, it is, at least mine were not right. But I was, you know, you were like, like you said, you're being told like, these are the greatest, greatest years of your life. I think what's actually happened now because of different ways that, that parents perceive of things and, uh, more anxiety that touches on some of this mental health crisis that you're, that you're alluding to that, uh, young people, particularly high school kids are held closer to their parents. So those greatest years of your life to be your most authentic self get pushed off into young adulthood. So it's now kind of like 20 to 30 is where you really, you know, have to have all your adventures before, you know, you settle down or something. Um, and so I think, I think it gets pushed a, a little bit off. I think, and you think of my own 14 year old who we know where he is all the time, like he's on his bed watching Netflix. Uh, but there's part of him that I, that I see that he bears that, that seems to fit with other research that goes exactly with what you're saying is that there becomes this incredible anxiety of you having to figure out your own self and you have to find your recognition to find, you need to find your own authenticity, which means that you have to win recognition from other people 
And um, that becomes a real journey. One of the books that I've come across uh, recently, a, a theory that's been really um, insightful for me, they didn't make it into this book, but we'll make it into volume three of, of the series. Uh, that This book is number one, is, is a book called The Wariness of the Self by a, a, a French sociologist. Um, and his whole point is he, he's trying to do kind of like Taylor, but not using 700 pages, only like 300 pages. <laughs> God bless that man. Uh, is that he... Uh, he wants to do a genealogy of depression and he's trying to look at like culturally, how has depression become kind of the ailment that modern people deal with And his argument, kind of stretching and making connections to, you know, stretching back in history, but then making connections to, to a Prozac and um, a post Prozac age is uh, his argument is that one of the things that depression is, is this, this necessity of you to have to curate and present and continue to work on your own self. And what depression becomes is the fatigue of doing that. And he thinks that this becomes a huge issue that we face is that when that people can feel overwhelming kind of sense of depression, when they just don't have the energy to work on the self anymore and that they just feel like they just, they just can't do it. And, and French, the title is, is more informative. Like I said, in English, it's the wariness of the self. And, and if you translate it literally in French, it's the fatigue of being yourself. Um, and that he thinks this is like the, the central reality of, of his argument is a, a kind of depression is this need, this, this drive of authenticity, this good that you get to define for yourself what it means to be human and that no other human being can tell you what it means to be you and that yourself is your own and you get to present yourself to the world and get feedback on who you are and, and you know, discover who you, you follow the only authority that really speaks to you, that that can become incredibly fatiguing. Um, and you see this with, even like my kid who's on his bed at 14, just watching Netflix all the time, he seems really safe, but he lives under an incredible burden of trying to figure out like, who am I? How should I present myself? Is this the kind of self I want to be? Well, if I make this choice, does that eliminate me from being this kind of self? And so that, I think you're right. There's just a, there's a ton of pressure of trying to, to work this out. So in a very Taylor-esque way, there's games. I mean, there's real games to be able to express the depth of your own experience and to have that be respected um, at a certain level. But then there's also the burden that it's up to you, that it's on you, and that you have to figure that out. And if you can't work on the self in a truly unique way, if you don't use your time, um, say your time from when you graduate to college to when you're 33, if you don't use that to have really great experiences or read the right books or go to the right concerts or start the right startup or, you know, uh, uh, write the right music or whatever thing you're going to do. Um, that's an incredible burden. I mean, you all of a sudden can feel incredibly depressed to be 28 years old and look back on your life and, and think, well, I haven't done anything or I haven't been a self that's, uh, really, truly, um, authentic or won a bunch of recognition culturally. And uh, I think that becomes a, a burden we, we all have to bear in a certain way. Yeah. You know, burdened people like that are often easy to sell things to. Mm. <laughs> yeah. I mean, in the, in, I, and I assume that you're, you're building on Taylor here. Um, you, you talk about authenticity and youth and then consumerism, which is, I mean, it's sort of a postmodern triad that's, it's really a series of non sequiturs, but our culture really treats them as if they actually are intrinsically related. Mm -hmm. um, so 
how 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 does this how does this work out in a a a, a capitalist consumerist um, materialist in that acquisitive sense, and I guess in the philosophical sense as well, mm-hmm. uh, society. Yeah, like so with the first part of the book, all Taylor has, I try to tell a story too. I mean, I think this is the problem when you read Taylor and um, really like Taylor. All of a sudden, you you want to tell a story like Taylor in probably um, volume two of this, of, of this series that comes out here. This is my ugly plug um, that comes out in June uh, called the pastor in the secular age. It's awesome. too, it ended up too long. You know, like the, 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 the book ended up too long and Baker was like, Oh, all right, we'll publish it this long, but make sure volume three isn't this long. And then you realize it's, this is just a vocational hazard of reading Taylor, you know, like it's, <laughs> it's too long, but like I just like this dude. And he, this guy doesn't, you know, everything's too long. So, um, so, but you, you end up doing this, you end up trying to tell these kind of genealogy stories and you write too long. You find yourself in the weeds with some idea that you think is fascinating. That actually is interesting to the story, but you know, um, so what I tried to do, and, and I think I'm, I'm, I'm a little pushing, uh, definitely in on the trail of Taylor, but pushing beyond it, I think is, is trying to connect Taylor won't go so far as he definitely connects consumerism. He, he has a whole chapter in the secular age talking about a whole chapter, at least half a chapter, like talking about the impact of Playboy on, on the way we thought about sex and things like that. So there's some really interesting pieces there. But I was fascinated with how this could, this could occur, how authenticity could be distributed to the whole of society where you, you'll sometimes hear people say, you know, um, every election we're still having, you know, a fight over 1960, 68 or 69. Like we've never kind of left right. the late sixties in, in some ways. And, and how does this happen? And, and how did we get to this where we really do have this sense where we all pretty much intrinsically and at one level or another, I mean, there may be some people who are more committed than others, but all this kind of affirm the ethic of authenticity that, yeah, every human being does have a right to define for themselves what it means to be human. Some of us are more hardcore on that than others, but we all, so how does that happen? And so the way I tried to trace this story, and I think it's, it fits Taylor, but I think I'm also maybe doing my own, own thing off of him a little bit, is to think about post-war, this kind of sense of um, the way the mass society was going to make sure that the two nightmares that we had just come out of would never happen again, which that we would never see a world war three and we'd never see a depression like that. These things would never happen. And, and the way that they would solve these issues was basically through through economics, like through buying, through having the kind of economy where every American family became a small stream of spending would lead to a roaring river of the American economy. And that would keep depression forever away. And that, of course, would show that we were a better society than our atheist, uh, our atheist communist uh, rivals, um, even though ours was, for the most part, just as much of an imminent bound um, system as, as theirs. But, you know, never mind that. Um, and so, but this was all still based on duty. And you see this throughout the fifties where like every man dressed the same and everyone got a black Buick and you have these like track houses in, in Northern California, new suburbs where every house looked exactly the same. And I was drawing up the work of this guy named Thomas Frank, who's written this really interesting book called the conquest of cool. 
And his whole point is that Madison Avenue people hated this movement in the 50s of the organized man. Like it was their job to keep the economy fluid, and yet they had no idea how they were going to do this, how they were going to keep people buying when the point of buying was to do your duty. Like do your duty, move to the suburbs, have a couple kids, buy a Buick, um, eat a, eat a um, frozen dinner, and isn't this better than the duty you did when you fought in the war and the Battle of the Bulge? I mean it's much better to watch gun smoke than, have, you know, than to get shot at. Like, but you're still doing your duty. Well, the problem became is how do you keep people buying products and that? How do you keep the mass society going? And then you have this revolution occur where the kids who were raised on Gunsmoke and Mickey Mantle became inc- incredibly distraught with the good life that the suburbs were presenting. And then they saw that their government was actually you know, lying to them. And so then you get this whole, this bohemianism that existed in multiple places that Taylor likes to point to, this kind of romantic bohemianism. Mm-hmm. All of a sudden, the, the young people grab a hold of that. But that doesn't lead to the revolution. The revolution happens when Madison Avenue then looks at this new form of authenticity, this new good of authenticity that comes through maybe, you know, this 150-year-old bohemian sense of looking for authenticity that was only in some kind of enclaves of weirdos who were smoking and, you know, doing heroin and things like that and writing poetry. All of a sudden that becomes an excellent way to sell products, that if the point now is not do your duty and buy a Buick because that's the American thing to do, but you could actually express your unique self. You could be use what you buy to be authentic. So um, uh, Frank's basic point is that the, you see this with Pepsi, you see this with um, uh, um, uh, Volkswagen, that they start to use the countercultural tropes as a way to sell product. So essentially they, they link up with the age of authenticity. And my point is and that that just becomes writ large then, that it just becomes American culture. And we have this incredible shift away from duty to authenticity as our highest kind of moral good. And in many ways, I mean, it's a little bit overstated, but not too much. The church has been behind ever since. Like the church has not been able to catch up and respond to, to that transition. Some have done unique things to respond to that. And I think evangelicalism, particularly in its history and, and some of the megachurch movement actually saw that and responded and mm-hmm. in its own way to that. Um, and I think some ways have been theologically problematic, but other ways, at least there was a, there was a kind of a cultural, uh, a, a cultural genius to, to be able to see this shift that the main, mainline just simply couldn't see and uh, that they saw they responded to by turning their churches into essentially you know, shopping malls and, and, uh, and movie theaters. Like that was a response to this. Um, but it led to all sorts of theological problems, I think. Um, but I think that's, for me, that's the story of how this kind of gets, um, gets pushed kind of writ large. And then Taylor does reference David Brooks books, uh, book Bobo's in paradise. And, and so I tried to mine that too, and actually even think about kind of contemporary post-war youth ministry as really, um, created to attract bobos, really, um, people who wanted yeah. their kids to find their authentic selves, but also wanted them to be the kind of bourgeois who would go to college, get a, get a, get a degree, uh, be able to participate in uh, um, the kind of a growth economy. Um, and so that we're, we're, yeah, we become kind of stuck in those things. And so the churches that do the best are churches that then attract bobo-like people, people who are on authentic authenticity hunts, but also are very much part of the economy and buying and find meaning and find significance in buying and actually uh, medicate themselves from the reductions of the imminent frame by buying new products and that we're all kind of stuck in that. Yeah. 
Bohe not bohemian enough to just live in a van for the rest of your life, trying to make it as a muse musician, but bohemian enough to keep buying the Beatles when a new form of music recording comes out. Exactly. Yep, exactly. Bohemian enough to say, I got to find my true self, but not really bohemian enough to, to bohemian enough to, to consume art more than to actually do it, you know? Right. Well, the, yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm just fascinated over the course of this narrative, um, which it, it, dear listener, it is, it is half the book, but um, it's worth being half the book. Uh, there, there's there's kind of a bad way to blame the '60s for everything. Um, yeah. Uh, but th this this I think uh, pop, popped the hood on a lot of on a lot of cultural phenomena and integrated them in a way that I thought was really it, it was really helpful to me. Um, well, thanks. To... It was a little bit of an existential crisis for me because you know being the the child of a baby boomer who was told like the sixties were the greatest time ever i you know like uh, i i the last thing I wanted to do was give those from the age of Aquarius any credit for uh for <laughs> changing things up like it was it, for me it was like a Freudian moment of having to affirm my parents were right about something, but it was I mean, it was an incredibly watershed moment, and it mm. did really change our cultural, our cultural realm. And we're, we're living in the legacy of that for, for good and for ill. Well, living in, living in the cultural legacy and also living in some sense under it, the imminent mm -hmm. frame has a really low ceiling <laughs> in our culture. Um, one of the things too, that I appreciate, and I guess, I guess now's the time to transition to the second half. Um, there's an old Peanuts cartoon in which Linus is walking out in the night with a candle and Charlie Brown asks him what he's doing. And Linus says, well, I heard someone say that it's better to light a candle, a single candle than to curse the darkness. And then in the last frame, Lucy is screaming out in the darkness, you stupid darkness. Um, <laughs> and I feel like a lot of folks are sort of doing that about, um, individual pieces of this picture that you're putting together. Moral therapeutic deism, you stupid darkness. Twitter, stupid darkness. Um, but you aren't just yelling at the darkness in the second half, and I appreciated that. <laughs> so, I, I, I and once once I figured out, okay, this is this is what he's doing. This is what he's after. I, I, I really appreciated it you're not just trying to search for a way out of secular three so much as finding a way through the sort of imminent frame that we're in. How, what, what is, what is it like to live under it? What pressures does it put on us and how might that give us a way through and out, you know, which is already bound up in the thing itself. Yeah, for sure. I mean, and I think that is a, a legacy that, that, that Taylor has, has taught me that I, I think he's really right on is that none of us get out of this. Like there's, you can, you know, like you can like to use your analogy, you can yell at the dark all you want, but you are a secular person and you live in, in the imminent frame. And just as much as someone in, you know, the 13th century couldn't help, but assume they were living in a supernatural world. Um, so those of us today who are even believers can't help but inherit a very nat natural one. So there, there's no way 
Um, and I think both evangelicals and mainliners do this in, in very different ways, but they both do it, I think, which is to kind of, like you're saying, curse the darkness or try to be, be above it or beyond it or try to find a way quickly around it. And there is no way. Like the, the imminent frame is our reality, um, the kind of se- – we are secular people, but that doesn't mean there isn't possibilities here and that even in the, inside the logic of the imminent frame – there are there are possibilities, and there are ways to live with what Taylor calls um, skylights to transcendence within it, or what he calls an open take to be actually open to real experience within it. So the second half of the book, I'm trying to, and this is probably a through line of all my work, is I'm I'm just really maybe this is why I became such a Taylor junkie in many ways is that uh, for me the big question really goes back to Bonhoeffer for me when I read Bonhoeffer in seminary and I never stopped reading Bonhoeffer, but this idea that we, that the challenge for the theologian, the challenge for the pastor um, in modernity and, you know, whatever his 1930s on is that we have to say something concrete about the presence of God in our lives, that we have to be able to actually testify concretely to where it is that the living Jesus Christ encounters us. Um, and, you know, Bonhoeffer's crazy phrase in discipleship where he says in the same immediacy that the first century disciples encountered the living Christ, so you too today encounter Christ in that same immediacy, which is just nuts, which is why any church I go into, and if it still has a has a library, I'll go into it, I'll look for her discipleship, and you'll find the cost of discipleship in every church library, whether they're really conservative or really liberal, which just proves to me no one has ever read the book. You know, like, no one's ever read it. <laughs> Because it's a, it's, it's a crazy, crazy book, you know, like um, that's really disturbing that he's saying that you are encountering Jesus Christ in that same immediacy. Maybe not the same form as the first century disciples, but the same immediacy that Jesus Christ is speaking to you today to come and to follow, um, to follow him to the cross. And so how I think the challenge for us then becomes, well, how, how do we go about discerning that inside the imminent frame that this Jesus Christ is still speaking to us, but you can't. A lot of the the cheap ways that we presume that, you just can't do that inside the imminent frame. But I'm with Taylor in thinking it still does happen, um, in that there are ways that you can take on practices. There are ways that um, that we can share in community that open us up to um, and, and bring us real encounters with the living Christ. And that becomes the challenge. So exactly what you're saying, it's not to, to yell at the darkness as much as to almost embrace, and maybe I'm taking this analogy too far now, but almost embrace the darkness. Well, in a real way, through Paul's theology of the cross here, is to actually embrace the darkness and embrace the death experience. And in the midst of sharing in and narrating our experiences around the darkness of the death experience, that we find something profound. We find the imminent frame cracked open, that we find when when our um, neighbor ministers to us and we minister to our neighbor the concrete presence of, of something much more of a deeper of a deeper well of reality than the imminent frame could ever presume. Something much more profound than just buying new products and feeling somewhat satisfied with our new things. Like we find well, we find transformation and we find find new life. So I'm really then trying to in the second half of the book um, presume that we're people bound in the imminent frame, that we are people who are are stuck in a kind of secular uh, a secular reality where divine action seems weird, but nevertheless, inside of that, there's a way where I try to take Paul and try to uh, at least one version of reading Paul and address, address, uh, take Paul and put him in conversation with 
with this imminent frame here and, and try to try to see if there's a, a, a way forward or a way inside of this reality to, uh, to imagine um, God acting and moving within it. Well, I appreciated the, 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 the subtlety of that move uh, at the very beginning. You know, one of the very first things that uh, you talk about in the introduction is, is receiving a phone call um, dealing, you know, asking for you to, uh, talk about in, in some kind of, uh, uh, I guess, round table or seminar type setting to talk about moral therapeutic deism and the nuns and, you know, moral therapeutic deism. I've heard, I've heard about a lot and it's, it's almost always approached as mainly a catechesis problem. Mm-hmm. Like, like if we were just more theologically particular and rigorous, with you know in in the formative years of our children and our and our young people then then this wouldn't be cropping up and what you're doing at the in the second half of this book you are doing theology some some pretty some pretty heavy complex theology so in what ways are you treating this as a as a catechesis solution in what ways do you see this as doing something more than just catechesis? Yeah, um, I wouldn't want to say it's not a catechesis issue, mm-hmm. but I think I'm trying to do something very different than catechesis because I'm exactly with you. Every time that moral therapeutic deism comes up, as a really helpful, I think, descriptive sociological analysis, um, I'm, I, have, I, I think Chris Smith is right about his analysis. I think what I've tried to do in the first half of the book is to put that in a larger um, kind of uh, philosophical, uh, cultural philosophical framework, and and and, and I said the way that moral therapeutic deism is almost always talked mm-hmm. about um, is, is something like, well, this is the church. The church is a great garden, and now we have this weed in it called moral therapeutic deism. And if we could just pull this weed out, then we'd be done with it. It's a it's a really tricky weed to get off, but we just got to pull the weed out. And my perspective wants to be, no, 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 no. Moral therapeutic deism is the indigenous plant of this this age of authenticity. Like it's yeah. supposed to be here. Like it's exactly supposed to be here. And so we are going to be in this garden all day and, um, you know, die of starvation here. If we keep trying to pull it out, we need a different kind of imagination. So I hope in the back door, it is about catechesis, but for me, ultimately, and again, this is probably true of all my work, probably too much. So that it really is a question of hermeneutics. It's ultimately what it comes down to. It's, it's, it's a really, um, what I'm trying to do in the second half of the book is interpret is, is, is really a framework of interpretation. How do we then, inside this cultural realm, interpret the encounter with a living God? What would that look like? How is faith actually not just about commitment and consent to beliefs that can be put on a sociological um, kind of uh, liquor scale or um, variables in a, in, a, in a question and answer? How is faith actually um, the encounter with the living Jesus Christ? And, and what what is what what form does that take? What does that actually look like? And and I you know this is again the legacy for me through Bonhoeffer to to Luther um, back to Paul in this book is to think of the cross and as this hermeneutic of of trying to interpret this. And I guess my argument is that the age of authenticity opens up in its inconsistencies really opens up all sorts of experiences of the cross. Mm-hmm. It makes your experience really important, but it can never really solve your longing for, um, for communion, for recognition, for affirmation, for, um, 
satisfying what doesn't feel quite right. And I think Paul gives us a much deeper perspective of, of Jesus Christ coming to us in the midst of these moments of impossibility, or as I probably annoyingly in the book call it, like negation. The experiences of feeling nothingness actually become the real fertile ground for transformation. But that takes a certain hermeneutic. That takes a certain theological hermeneutic to expect that when things look impossible— um, the God of Israel, the God that raises Jesus Christ from the dead, is going to be present there. Um, and so so it is catechesis, but it's catechesis through kind of interpretation. So I think at the core, it's really about the uh, about how we how we concretely interpret revelation to get kind of theologically nerdy with it. yeah, that makes that makes a lot of sense because um, it's. I mean, I, I like your illustration of the moral therapeutic deism is not a weed, it's what the garden grows. Um, the, the problem is not that young people need to be told that we aren't deists. <laughs> right. Or that God simply wants them to be good and happy. It's not that they, that they haven't been told it. I'm sure they've been told it numerous times, even, you know, even if they've sometimes gotten mixed messages. It's that the world we inhabit makes makes those uh, makes those points feel most comfortably naturally plausible so which, for sure which means which means you have to offer not just different facts or different bullet points but like a whole different logic yeah yeah and that logic to me it has to come through the, the narratives of the, of the people who have had these experiences and yeah. and so that's what try kind of what I try to pull out from Paul is that Paul's real understanding is this sense that he had one narrative he was living out of and I'm you know drawing from the New Testament scholar Michael Gorman this kind of narrative of Phineas of going and purifying the boundary of being mm-hmm. kind of zealous and then he gets completely well literally knocked to the ground and um and a new a new narrative has to be born from that, and the the narrative of Abraham and God moving out of out of deadness and moving essentially out of the cross becomes uh, really formative to his own identity about about who he is and the very identity about who this God is as well. And and that to me becomes our challenge is that then these these kind of stories um, are what what actually do the heavy lifting of catechesis itself. And um, instead, like you're saying, we sit down and say, all right, now we're going to give you a better outline with different bullet points um, or a better curriculum that's going to avoid this. And then we're going to have a problem solved where really it is. No, I mean, we need to hear we need to hear as Taylor would say, these open takes. We need to hear people who up against battles with cancer and um, issues of depression and uh, just deep forms of longing um, have continued to encounter Christ, continue to follow as Christ has called them. And uh, um, that I think that becomes both quite beautiful way forward and obviously a, a challenging one. But, you know, it, it, so there's a formation in here. So, you know, the book's called, uh, you know, Faith Formation of Secular Age. For me, the real informative character is Ananias, that Ananias is the person who becomes really significant here, who comes and shares in Paul's experience of negation and of loss and um, helps him re-narrate this experience that becomes incredibly transformational to him. Yeah, the the vision of ministry that yeah. that is put forth in this as as an integral part of the story that ministers aren't just this that they aren't 
they aren't just sort of like auto mechanics who exist as sort of necessary adjuncts to auto driving, but they're not always with you. Um, mm-hmm. That a minister is not that. I, 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 I really appreciated the way you made the logic of ministry so integral to the story that you can't imagine um, that you can't imagine a Christianity without big M and little M ministry. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, and in volume two, I mean, this is, again, it's the ugly segue into the to the new book that will come out in June. Is that I try to I try to do that even more so, and 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 look at ministry um, as we try to imagine what it would mean to be even a pastor in a in a secular age. Is that this this sense of God as minister, that God's own being constituted as the as the minister? Um, and I I do a lot of work with Robert Jensen's kind of idea that. Um, whoever God is, God's the one who frees Israel from Egypt and raises Jesus from the dead. That those are fundamental acts of ministry. That the only God we know is God who ministers. And so, for us to have this encounter with with uh, with God's own being is is to to actually take on the actions of ministry. And so it becomes something like Ananias. So if there's catechesis here, it's a very action-based catechesis um, that maybe isn't action-based in the sense of doing a lot, but in a kind of disposition of going to your neighbor in, in giving and receiving ministry as, uh, as just this deep fundamental reality of, uh, of God's own being constituted this way, that the Trinity is the relationship of Father, Son, and Spirit ministering one to another for eternity, um, and that we participate in the life of the Trinity through, um, being ministers ourselves, ministering to one another, um, but it's, it is this, the, the Trinity also shows us there's a dynamic, not just of giving. It isn't just a, uh, like you're saying, um, you know, just you doing the service for other people. Mm-hmm. It's actually receiving it as well. Yeah. Um, so you have to, you have to receive ministry as well as give it. And of course we see Jesus do this throughout the gospels often of, of, uh, um, both needing to, to receive the oil of anointing from the woman as well as to wash the feet of his disciples. So both give and receive ministry becomes a, a really significant dynamic. Well, I think we are, we are getting near the limits of, of our time for today. We have covered so much stuff. Um, yeah, man, it's been a fun conversation. Well, one of the ways we like to be hospitable on Christian humanist profiles is to let our guests have the last word. So is there any, any last point that you'd want to make? We haven't hit yet something that we've hit so far that you'd want to be reemphasize or, or just say, um, look for the next book. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, you set me up perfectly. Yeah, of course I want to say, look for the next book, but I mean, I think it's just re- reiterating the really rich conversation we've had that, um, first of all, that, uh, there's no way for any of us to avoid the secular age. So I, I really like your, your reference of the, of the, um, of the peanuts, uh, uh, cartoon in the sense that there's no reason to yell at the dark. There's no reason for us to yell at, at the secular, that we are as secular as anyone. Um, but that there are real possibilities inside of this and, in, in real moments where we can have a, a deep theological imagination. And I think that theological imagination can be so generative because it's at its core, I don't think it ultimately leads to, um, say the, the the library of the theologian, but leads actually to the practice of ministry, and that the way um, to really have an answer or to find a way of faithfulness inside the secular age we live in is um, really to to minister to one another, and that sounds somewhat kind of rosy and uh, a, a little sentimental, but I think there's a deep theological logic in it. So I hope uh, people will try to check that out and. Um, 
as I continue that in, in volume two, we'll, we'll take a look at that as well. So it's been uh, just fun to, to have this conversation for sure. Well, thank you. And I've enjoyed having it as well. And dear listeners, I hope that you've also enjoyed listening to it. We've been talking to Dr. Andrew Root, author of Faith Formation in a Secular Age, Responding to the Church's Obsession with the Youthfulness. That book is available from Baker Academic. There will be a link to that in the show notes on our blog when those post. Uh, you can also give us feedback on the show notes on our blog. Our blog is christianhumanist.org. Uh, you can also give us feedback through Gmail, thechristianhumanist at gmail.com, and you can post them on our Facebook page. Christian Humanist Profiles is a program on the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our player's liaison is Kristen Philippic. Our audio editor is Britt Stack. And I'm David Grubbs, wishing you all grand weeks, and be listening for the next Christian Humanist Profiles. <laughs>